Welcome back to What the Midwife Said, the podcast about how babies and families are made. I'm your host, Leah Hazard, and I'm a mother, a writer, and yes, I'm a midwife too. In this series, I'll be speaking to some fascinating guests about their experiences of pregnancy, birth, and parenthood, from fertility and loss, to the challenges of navigating our maternity services, to the joys and traumas of raising children in a changing world. No judgment, no shame. Just what the midwife said. Today's guest is Luce Brett. Luce started out working in film and television before the birth of her first child changed everything. She sustained a pelvic floor injury that led to incontinence and a journey through the NHS that is still ongoing. Luce writes so movingly about birth injury and the stigmas around incontinence in her brilliant book, PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. I spent the first few hours of my labour sitting on a toilet, groaning and riding it like a horse. This is the most dignified moment of that sordid 19 hours, and probably the following two years too. The entire process from start to finish is a catalogue of shock, boredom and humiliation. The first thing I do when it's over is text Kat, my friend, with no weight, no name or details, just the line, it's a fucking conspiracy. As I should have expected, my conspiracy involves screaming, mooing, begging and whimpering, with side orders of physical degradation and waiting around, though unexpectedly, I do crack a couple of rude but well-timed jokes too. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Lewis Brett. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Lisa. It's an absolute pleasure. I enjoyed your book so much when I read it. And as soon as I read it, I just wanted to run out and tell everybody, why haven't you heard of this book? So we'll we'll get into talking about that and um, and we'll delve right into it. But before we do, for those of you who can't see us, which is probably anybody listening, um, Luce has a gorgeous print behind her, which we were just talking about, that says, strong and stable my arse, which I think pretty much sums up how we all feel this year, does it not? <laughs> yes, it's partly that. And also, um, I partly kind of sums up the themes of my book and <laughs> the themes of my um, pelvic floor, if, if, if that's not too rude for this time in the morning. But um, yeah, so I, strong and stable my arse, exactly, mm-hmm. right? Here we go. Yeah, completely. I mean, no, we can be as rude as we like and pelvic floors are absolutely why we're here. So yeah, bring it on. Um, I mean, it's been an incredibly difficult year for everybody. Uh, We all know why. And obviously if you have health issues and or a young family, (laughs) that just makes it even harder. Um, So before we get into your pelvic floor, uh, I know you've been through a few tough things in the last few weeks um you've been camping with your family how did that go uh actually you know what it was all right in the end but um I always think the thing with camping is that my children absolutely adore it and um and and I and I have to kind of cope with it but this year for the first time ever we went glamping so I had a mattress and um a duvet and for me that kind of was a game changer so now I'm back into camping now I'm like like my 14 year old ready to go back oh that's good that's good we went glamping once in a teepee and um, it was great until it rained um, like monsoon torrential rain for about three days. And we, we had to do an emergency early departure from the teepee. Did you have like a, a yurt or a bell tent or something? Yes, it was a bell tent. I did feel a bit of a wanker. Um, but no, we did. And but what we also did was we went to this amazing <laughs> little holiday cottage afterwards. So we managed to kind of 
end it in somewhere with a tumble dryer and, <laughs> and a shower. So we, when we got back to London, we were like all really refreshed, which was not really normal for camping. Well, you have mastered glamping clearly, and I applaud that. Um, and you've you've really, in your book, a lovely segue, managed to make a really gorgeous silver lining out of also a very challenging and difficult situation. So we're here to talk mainly about Luce's fantastic memoir, which is called PMSL, or How I Literally Pissed Myself Laughing and Survived the Last Taboo to Tell the Tale. And in this book, you talk about um, your birth injuries, birth trauma, how you recovered from them, and how we can all, as uh, patients, women, and practitioners, do better at understanding these things and managing them. So we'll get right into your pelvic floor. And uh, maybe you can start by just sharing with the listeners who haven't read the book, um, just in brief, because I'm sure you've explained this many, many times, uh, what happened to you? Yeah, for sure. So I have two kids. And when I had my first baby, I had what was in lots of ways on on the piece of paper, very sort of straightforward, normal, in inverted commas, vaginal delivery, but it did leave me with some damage. And that damage was mainly in my pelvic floor and left me incontinent, uh, urinary incontinence at first. And um, I was kind of shell-shocked by birth anyway, and shell-shocked by what happened, even though I was very well prepared in some ways, but in all the wrong ways, I realised afterwards. Um, And I had various treatments and it was quite distressing to have completely lost control of my pelvic floor. I discovered it holds your whole life together, really. Um, And weighing all the time is certainly not ideal. And there's a reason why there's all the shame and taboo around it, because you have absorbed it and you feel it when you wet yourself in public. So I was kind of shell-shocked by birth, shell-shocked by motherhood and shell-shocked by this issue that had happened to me. And... um, I sort of developed a lot of like emotions and anger and terror and stress. And I had lots of medical interventions and I had a second child as well. And then by the time I'd done that, I kind of slowly started to realize that I was more cross than I was upset or distressed because I was both upset and distressed. But I was cross because this uh, issue, so ending up leaking and wetting yourself or even leaking from your bowels, which I also did, um, is so prevalent and so common and yet so under discussed and so I started thinking and writing about it and that's where the book came in and the book is kind of it is looking for silver linings although I'm very skeptical of of thinking that um, bad things happen for a reason I think that's rubbish I think I could have learned all the same things from really nice things happening to me rather than crapping myself in an MRI machine but with that caveat I do think sometimes you know this is what we've got. So you've got to find a way to live with it. And the thought of anyone else being as heartbroken and as distressed as I was by incontinence kind of made me think, well, I want to do something about that. And then one of my doctors said, and there was a number of catalysts, but one of them was a doctor saying to me, I was there with bowel incontinence and I was very unhappy. And she said, I said, are all your patients this unhappy? And she was a GP of long standing, you know, 20, 30 years. And she said, no, I've never had a patient who could talk about it like you. They don't talk about it. They can't. And I said, like, what? And she said, people can't talk about incontinence. Like, you're the first patient I've ever had who's been able to articulate. You know, I knew people were feeling those things and I was trying to help them. But you're the first person I've met who's been able to talk about it. And um, that, along with all the other women and um, people who have given birth who I met, uh, I just thought, well, you know what, if I can write about it, then maybe I should. And maybe I do want to look into why 
not just me, not just mums in the UK, not just people on Mumsnet, not just women across the world, but why everyone has all these issues around continence and we and poo and, you know, childbirth and birth injuries and why they're not polite to talk about, even though they affect so many people, and to kind of put it in context. So I think that's what I did to kind of silver lining, if you like. I, I, I looked at where I was in the whole big world and history of incontinence being shamed and how I could maybe try and find a way to understand and myself and like myself and forgive myself a bit for all the shameful things that had happened. Mm. I mean, it's really powerful, actually, that you say to forgive yourself, because obviously none of this is your fault. You know, you, you haven't done anything wrong. The only thing you've done is have a female body that's then given birth. And so much of what happens in birth is not within our power to control. And you talked a little bit about um, thinking back to how you prepared for birth or, you know, whether you're aware these things could happen. Um, as a midwife, you know, I even I, looking back in my training, wasn't really aware of the extent to which continence issues could result from birth injuries. And in fact, um, when I was a fairly junior, newly qualified midwife, um, I witnessed a birth injury that was so catastrophic, I actually wasn't even aware that such a thing could physically have happened. You know, I couldn't quite believe my eyes that this was a thing that could happen to a body. And I think um, practitioners as well oftentimes aren't very well informed about what can go wrong and the long-term consequences. I'm interested to know when you were preparing for the first birth, was this something that was ever discussed if you went to parent craft classes or at your appointments? Was it something that midwives um, flagged up or was it? did this whole thing come as a, a huge shock and surprise? So I did know a bit and I knew all the normal things. So like the kind of, I don't think the tagline was around then, but the oops moment and the jokes um, and, you know, people from, elsewhere in my life who'd maybe experienced a bit of sneezing and wetting themselves or even having to have surgery so I knew that in a vague way but only in a vague way a bit like you know I'm 44 I'm sure I have the same kind of dissociative attitude to aging you know <laughs> that I sort of imagine it's going to happen to someone else in some way differently to me like I think we all do um did they bring it up yes but my one of the things I do in the book is I look at like and it was totally true that I had this sort of moment of realisation about six weeks after my son was born that I didn't know where my perineum was exactly. I, you know, the more specialists I saw, I was like, how many sphincters? What? Like, oh, my. And there was all this stuff I didn't know. And I realised that, you know, how could I even assess the damage if I didn't know what was there in the first place? And so the first part of the book is sort of looking at what I learned at school, what I learned in those classes. And in those classes, they did bring things up. But one of the problems, I think, with a lot of classes that you have for women who are pregnant and is that they come too late. Like I describe, I've had a lot of comments from other people about similar experience of kind of being, I was powered down to amber, man. When I was sitting in that room and we were all like 10 months pregnant, really super pissed off, completely in denial so we were having a conversation about what slippers you would wear in labor like that was like a thing and then and then hearing the sort of slightly caustic but kindly kind of nervous giggles from people who've had children when you'd start talking about your birth plan the first time and you think oh is this going to be so horrific what is it? and and kind of I just went like and I remember that she did bring up pelvic floor stuff but it was we were about 37 38 weeks and it almost felt indecent then it was like really and um, she mentioned uh, perineal massage, the, the, and I thought, you know, 
sounds a little bit like masturbating, like, oh, crikey. And I just thought, I can't. And then, and in the book, I put probably the most salutary thing I found, which was a picture of a 10 centimeter circle. And that was the moment when I did have a like, uh, uh. <laughs> but it was too late by then. I was already massively pregnant and I wasn't really able to kind of process it. And that makes me sound, you yeah. know, I say in the book, you know, I'm like first girl with a hand up in class. I'm that sort of person. And I, I'd read it all. I knew how big it was, a cantaloupe or whatever, but I hadn't really stitched it together until unfortunately I was being stitched up. Yeah, and I think that's a really common experience, even for women who normally consider themselves really well informed or educated or proactive. And it's a tricky dance, isn't it, in those classes, because I think that kind of denial is a really normal coping strategy. I mean, midwives dance along this tricky line of wanting to let women know or birthing people know what might lie ahead of them while also being aware that you're trying to protect your headspace at that point. Like you say, you're powered down to amber. You just want to think about your hospital bag and kind of what nice smellies to pack in your toiletries so that you can have a good shower afterwards. And you don't, you know, really want to have an in-depth discussion about the possibility that you might be incontinent because of some injury you've sustained during this joyful event. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a, it's a dialogue with some roadblocks in between. And when yeah. you actually came to give birth, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think also midwife, the midwives doing their dance, um, I think that you're just doing the dance all of society does about childbirth in that we're very, very cagey about it. Now, obviously, I'm coming from a very specific sort of British, Northern European background. And I, I, I really did feel that as well, like that this was a, we, we, when we first met my NCT group, the only time I've ever seen those sorts of um, emotions represented is in like jurors after they've just witnessed a crime scene or something. Like we were, it was like we had all been taken to a place where we couldn't go back. Um, and I think, I think that the whole of society does this because when I wrote the book, people kept saying, well, "Don't you, you can't? Are you really going to write about your really traumatic experience of childbirth?" And it was like, "Well, yes," because for me, I would have liked to have read that, and I think I would have been better. Now, I do understand some people really don't want to, but I feel like if that had been around more broadly, those stories have been there more broadly. Maybe I would have been better prepared, and if I wasn't, if it's not possible to be prepared for it, and maybe that's true, then at least I wouldn't have felt like I was on my own. Because I thought, I, when you said forgive yourself at the beginning, I, I felt like it was all my fault for failing at childbirth. That I'd messed it up. Mm. Mm. Really powerful and, and really sad. Um, and I think, again, a feeling that's probably echoed by practitioners as well. When something like that happens, you think, it's my fault. I've done something wrong. How have I let this happen? And again, you know, the thing about so many traumatic birth injuries is they can't actually um, be prevented. Sometimes it's just a thing that happens and sometimes can be alleviated or prevented, but but quite often not. So do you have a reading that you wanted to do about the birth itself? And we can maybe have a look at that. Yeah, and what I wondered about doing, actually, is um, reading a little bit about the post-birth shower when you were, because you were talking about smellies and how we feel just before birth and talk about what my flashbacks were to. Would that be okay? Yeah, that would be lovely. Go for it. Okay. I spent the first few hours of my labour sitting on a toilet, groaning and riding it like a horse. This is the most dignified moment of that sordid 19 hours and probably the following two years too. 
The entire process from start to finish is a catalogue of shock, boredom and humiliation. The first thing I do when it's over is text Kat, my friend, with no weight, no name or details, just the line, it's a fucking conspiracy. As I should have expected, my conspiracy involves screaming, mooing, begging and whimpering, with side orders of physical degradation and waiting around, though unexpectedly, I do crack a couple of rude but well-timed jokes too. When I try to recall any more than that, um, immediately afterwards, the screen fades to white and then I'm standing in front of a mirror by the horse toilet, which is in a shower room off Labour Ward, dominated by a large mirror clearly installed by some kind of sadist. There I stand, a crazy ghost-like version of myself, staring at a deflated, bloated parody of my sweet, sweet, rounded, pregnant body, blood on my knees, pee and blood flowing down from the gap between my wobbling legs. Under a warm shower, I find no comfort. The shock of how little is left of my privates is underscored when I use original source shower gel and it smarts like motherfuck. But those things are nothing on my face, at once as beautiful, young and glowing as a brand new moon and as old and bitter and angry as time. The heat and steam and rusty smells rise. My senses are electric. I can hear a midwife outside, nearly as loudly as I can hear my own heart thudding under the weight of love for my son. Not a love that rushes in, a giddy flow, an excitement, but something that transcends time and binds us like skin fusing back together after a burn. The midwife sounds worried, but I can't place her concern. I'm scared she's going to tell me off. Perhaps she's worried I've been in there too long and I'm using up all the hot water. Perhaps the door that wasn't sticking hasn't shut properly and she's worried that the bloody lake, half piss and half what's left behind, seeping into the corner and will alarm some poor wretch on their way in. She asks if I need help. I don't know if I need it or what that would look like. I'm splitting. I don't want anyone ever to witness the state I'm in, but I very much want for someone to touch me to remind me I'm human. When I finally do remember what happened before, it isn't very nice. I got a bit tearful. I haven't thought about my eldest son's birth for ages. You did, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think anybody hearing those words for the first time will be really moved as well. I can't convey enough how beautifully written your book is just as a piece of work, as well as um, an exploration of birth injury and birth trauma. It's so powerful, Luce, and I think everyone will be touched by what you've said. Um, Yeah, I mean, mean, those first few moments after birth. Go ahead. I know, I was going to say, I, I realised that was a bit dark, but like you say, those first few moments are kind of mystical and magical and last forever and you feel, and then they disappear suddenly and suddenly you're in Marks and Spencer's two years later looking for pull-up pants or whatever and you realise that it's all gone into a big mush. So, yeah, it was very therapeutic to go through it, but it still winds, it still has its mark, I think, that first delivery of the shock. Well, absolutely will do. I mean, physically and emotionally. And those first few moments after any birth are so liminal and formative. And the way you feel then, I think, can really stay with you for years, regardless of whether things have gone well or badly. And at that time, obviously, you couldn't have known the extent of your injury or how that would affect your life. But did you feel in those moments as if something was fundamentally not right I mean you you say I'm splitting and I think that's really poetic in the sense that on some level you you must have known something was broken 
I, that's how I felt. And it was funny when a really close friend of mine read the book, she said, gosh, you use the word broken such a lot. And I hadn't really realised. And then when, I, when I've read bits since, I'm like, I did. I, that was a very strong sense. I'm broken. That's how I felt, broken emotionally and physically. Um, the whole book isn't quite as dark and gloomy as that, though, just so people know. And I just wanted to be really honest and to honour that because I think that sometimes when bad health things happen to people, we we move on and then then when we tell people about it we tell them the stuff that worked and that's really helpful but I felt like I must have been the only person who stepped out of a labour ward and thought I'm broken what is this and so many women have said so many women women I've not met or women who are like friends of my mum's or something of parents of friends of mine have written to me some of these women so much older you know in their 70s 80s 90s and said like for the first time, someone articulated how I felt. Oh my God, like I've, I, I could never process it because no one ever admitted that they felt like that. And and then the same is true about incontinence, that I've had letters from people of all ages saying, I've never told anyone this, but this happened to me too. And I, and it does make me pleased that if it's a little book, it might not be to everyone's taste, but it does seem to have been really helpful for a lot of people. If nothing else, in just letting them see a mirror, I felt like that. I had that fear. I felt disgusting because the book's very clear. I shouldn't have felt disgusting, but I, I did. And I think we, do, we forget to honour sometimes that that is a real reaction, shame and disgust and horror. Even if we can process it and work out, we shouldn't have felt like that. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I would venture to guess that probably more women leave Labour Ward feeling a bit broken than don't, actually, even when things have gone really well. It's a fundamental sense that you have been broken into pieces and you may be put back together again in a better way or a stronger way, but maybe not. Um, and like you say, it's it's almost as if in our kind of Western European way of looking at birth, we we do have a conspiracy of silence around that act of breaking um whether it results in injury or you know psychological trauma what why is there this conspiracy do you think it's because we are so ashamed of certain things do you think it's um a sort of inbuilt denigration of an issue that relates mainly to women and a kind of misogynistic repression of these concerns i mean is it is it everything why are we so bad at this I, I totally think it's about misogyny. I mean, I mean, I'm a bit of an old hairy femme about stuff like that, but I absolutely think that. And I am, um, and I was surprised. So I was reading, I follow you on Twitter, of course, and I, I, I love your writing too. And I, I was thinking about your forthcoming book and some of the stuff we were t- you've been talking about. And, and I, I realised, you know, maybe not in that moment when I was staring at the thing and I was too busy, you know, stinging from <laughs> like original source and, and all those stitches. But I, I remember thinking, you know, like, it's not long after, like, this is a conspiracy. Like, so I sent that text. That's the first thing I said. It's a conspiracy. It's a, we don't talk about it. We don't allow it to exist as it actually is in anything. Like, it's starting, actually. You see it more in books and films. But it's so hidden and it's so packaged into this beginning, middle, end fetish about, you know, you're big pregnant, then you come, and then a bit, and like maybe we've, like, grown up a bit and we show that you've still got a tummy after you've given birth. But that's not... All of it, is it? Whether it's been a cesarean, whether it has been the most empowering experience or whether it has been much worse than I experienced. As you say, some people end up, you know, leaving with a bag or whatever, which whatever your birth experience, it is quite a big deal. And we do literally set society up 
we do so that women come out of it and then or birthing people have come out of it and then just have to like get on with stuff and I remember thinking like you know I've got to like raise a human whilst relearning how to go to the toilet and wondering if I'll ever be able to look at my own body again like what like really and we do mm. do that but yeah I think there's lots yeah, of it's crazy isn't think- it because actually Lucy you know wouldn't we be able to get on with the work of mothering better and more efficiently and more powerfully if the world did acknowledge what we'd been through it's actually harder to get stuff done when you're coping in your head with this repressed trauma that nobody else seems to see we'd actually be more productive members of society if everybody said oh yeah you've really been through the shit like how can I help you absolutely and I was thinking when I read that passage again um, and I, I what I've I try to do as the book goes on is to sort of see where I can empathize with the situation. But I, I was struck by the midwife who was standing outside. And, and I think about that and what you've just said earlier in this chat, like um, that they're also carrying a lot of that trauma around and witnessing again and again, people falling like Alice through the tunnel. And, 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 and that's quite a shocking thing in and of itself seeing, because I, I remember when I actually when I had my continent surgery rather than give birth, but that was also relatively hardcore um, and physical. And I remember the recovery being quite tricky. And at one point, like seeing a nurse and then having uh, you know a tube removed and stuff, and then and then feeling more myself and like, walking in and, and her and the student um, with her saying, "Oh, it's a different woman." And and there's also that, isn't there? That you've seen if you're in midwife you've seen maybe someone come in and she's one sort of woman when she's having contractions every four or five minutes and she's all together and she's got her ideas and she's quite another broken woman maybe at the end or uh, and that's really it's it's such a big deal and we kind of ignore the fact that like you say the only way to carry on normally is as you said to like parcel it all up in your head and keep going and that's what I meant about splitting in a way I was like there's two of me now there's one of me that can see this truth and there's another that's going to have to deep breaths breastfeed eat some haribo make a joke on mum's net about my stitches and carry on and and I think so many women are doing that kind of carrying on piece where another part of you is I is still trapped in labor ward or or somewhere else that's been tricky you know it's not just birth but like they can't talk about it about that change in them or or even not just change, but just the impact. Because it is a shocking thing to sort of change yourself in front of yourself and be like, I thought I was really sensible. I read all the books. I thought I, I could draw you a diagram of of someone's insides, but actually it looks completely different and it felt completely different. And then when you see a proper diagram of like a pelvic floor and everything that's in 3D, you're like, oh, now I understand because what I learned at school was very 2D. And now I can see why my pelvis couldn't mm. cope with that. Now I can see how that happened. But these, like, does everyone have to go through these revelations? There must be a way where you could get to a point where people were more comfortable with all thinking about what this before, right? Like, so before we, you know. But, uh, yeah, I do think I mean, about midwives. Yeah, I hope so. Because the, this kind of carrying on, as you describe it, is so exhausting. And it takes so much emotional energy just to kind of deal with that before you can achieve anything else. And it's really kind of you to to try and put yourself in a midwife's shoes and sort of empathise with that as well, because there's, there is a similar kind of carrying on, I think, we do in our early years as a midwife when 
all of a sudden you see a woman broken, really broken by birth for the first time, or maybe you even as a practitioner have played some role, wittingly or not, in breaking that woman. And you suddenly see, you know, it's like the veil is lifted. You suddenly see like, oh, right, this is the business I'm in and this is what happens to people. And then you go home and you give your kids dinner and you carry on and you go back to work the next day. And it it really is, I mean, God, birth is such a messed up kind of business, no matter which end you're on, because whether you're the birthing person or the practitioner, it it does fundamentally break a part of you. And the way that you put those bits back together really determines your well-being for a lot of your life, I think. I think that's right. And I remember when I had my second baby, I think I had in my head that I wanted to have a perfect birth to kind of make up and atone for what happened the first time, which incidentally, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I actually only had a sort of quite gnarly, but okay, second degree ter- tear, but through a combination of things, including I found out after the book was published, like an underlying condition, I, I, I really didn't cope with pregnancy or birth. And that's what left me incontinent rather than a third or fourth degree tear. So it, I, but I wanted to do it right to see if that would work. And, and and with my second baby, there was a real feeling, and I think that this is what, what I'm getting at, sorry, about midwives, is that in the room, there was a second when my second baby was born. There actually was one with my first as well, where we all kind of, there was, you could feel the shock, but you could also feel something else because it is a messed up business. But it's also like a fundamental magic trick, isn't it? It is like the world will never be the same because you have arrived. And I think that's true whether you whether you have a live birth or not. I think that the world is fundamentally changed by that thing that happens in a small room with just a couple of people. And it's such an intimate thing to share, especially like the second one was a very quick, precipitous birth caught by the people who my doula went and yanked in from the corridor, running down the corridor. And it was shocking in its own way, but... There was a moment where I was like, you know, he's out and born and the world is different and it's a magic trick. And this is and we're all in this together. And this should be honoured, too, because this is, you know, there's blood and shit everywhere. But this is a big deal again. And I think that women's lives are just not treated as a big deal. You People talk blithely. I do a lot of ambassadorial work about continence and post-birth injuries and I work with brilliant charities and go and talk to practitioners and Uruguayan practitioners and nurses, so the people who do the second lot of stitching up and tidying up. And and I just think, like, people say these things like one in three as a statistic. That's a really well-known statistic about how many people suffer from urinary incontinence. Most figures congregate around there across the globe. One in 10 for fecal incontinence, although that might have been updated, I don't know. And And I sit there going, think about that again think about that again and look across this zoom call so how many like and I think that we we just blithely bang on about women's experiences and it's like if one in ten of them are are pooing themselves later in life as a result of continents why is it still a taboo because surely enough people have spoken about it and been upset about it so maybe we can move it on and I think we just diminish it and diminish it until it's sort of nothing till it's like and there's the baby, you know, and it's like, really, mm. that's what we've cut it down to. Mad men, you know, Betty Draper having a fag and having the baby brought to her all made up and perfect. Is that, is that, we all know it's collusion, right? Yeah, it's a total collusion and we do diminish it. And you're so right. I mean, if, if the stats are true, which we have no reason to believe they're not. And for example, one in three um, women will have some kind of incontinence after birth. 
surely there must come a tipping point when we we stop diminishing and we can say this this is a big deal. I mean, if one in three people ate cornflakes every morning for their breakfast, we'd all agree that cornflakes are a really popular breakfast food. You know, like we it would be a known thing. It would be the first thing on the shelf or the third thing on the shelf. And yet we diminish these things. I mean, I think I get just as worked up about these things as you do, Luce, to be honest. I'm definitely a hairy feminist and I will be 44 in a few weeks. So um, I'm right there with you. I mean, how can we how can we stop this apart from just you and me shouting about it and other, you know, really clever, talented people shouting about these things too? So I think I think the shouting is good, and I think that the storytelling is really powerful and important. Because I said say this in the book, like it's not about my experience of birth being definitive. It isn't, and and it's not about it even necessarily being normal or traumatic or whatever adjective you want there. But we need to have authentic stories that we can weigh ours up against, that we can think about, and the problem is that that is kind of making women solve it. So it's like. I mean, I said this in a really massive international conference. I said, you have asked me here to perform trauma so you can all think about the traumatic effect of continence issues on women. And and we have to be careful because otherwise it's just another job on the list of the incontinent person. And having been an incontinent person for a long time, um, I'm much better now, but I still have some issues. But having been really in a state with it, you know, you've already got quite a lot on your mind because you've got to have a spare set of clothes in your handbag. You've got to know where the, which nappies make you itch and which don't. You've got to work out if you can bear to make a sort of squeaky sound as you walk across an office. You've got all this stuff going on constantly in your head. It's such a lot of work, um, worrying whether you smell. That, like, giving me the job of de, de, de stigmatizing incontinence as well, it's, like, quite a big thing to ask the incontinent patient to do. Similarly, the traumatised birth mum. But I, I did some work, I don't know if you've done much stuff with Masic. And so obviously Masic do amazing work for women who have had these properly um, life-changing injuries where it's unequivocal issues, where things are actually don't work. There's no chance of rehabilitation for some things or whatever. And I, they asked me to write something for their website. And and what I, I was really unsure what to do, like go into my own stuff. And in the end, I sort of said, actually, you know what? I want to tell you that I was her standing in front of the mirror who was broken. I did work myself in mothered care and cry walking down the street. I have broken down in front of doctors. I've been all those women, but I am a woman now who you might not recognise as any of those women. And I'm not saying it glibly. I'm not saying there's any pressure to get better. I'm not saying you have to disavow yourself or not acknowledge what's happened, but actually... There is a point, there is a point when you're on a podcast and you're talking about your 14-year-old and where you don't burst into tears unless somebody makes you, makes you, make me, but unless you read something very intimate about your first birth where you have found a way to process it, that is possible. And and I thought that was kind of what Mm. we need to move to is just showing people that it is possible to come through it without invalidating what they're going through. Because I... I wrote a piece in the New York Times about PMSL uh, with another brilliant writer called Mara Altman who writes about women's bodies and hair and sweat and how we don't even talk about like how women's yeah, bodies have great. pus. Yeah, she's brilliant. And um, I got a letter from someone in, their 90, in, in her 90s and I just thought, I, I wish that someone had written this book 50 years ago for you because it has been helpful, but that is so late in the day 
for you to finally feel heard. And it's so unspoken about that it was another woman referring to something that happened to her that made you feel okay. And it's like, we do have to do something, right? Because that's not right. 50 years she'd been incontinent for 50 years. I mean, I get that quite a lot of women who've been incontinent for 30, 40 years and never told a soul, never told their husbands or their partners, never admitted it publicly and I'm not saying I also say that in the book by the way just in case anyone's listening and worried I'm going to start a fanny army and insisting everyone disclose their birth injuries and stuff I don't mean that like if you're post-birth incontinent and it feels a bit shit and um you just don't want to talk about it and to wear a long cardigan and right all power go for it no one's saying you have to do anything at all you have no responsibility to everyone to tell all your worst fears but just know you're not on your own and the more people who can tell who are in that position who are lucky who have a voice the better absolutely um I mean I think if there's one takeaway message to anyone who's been who's experienced some kind of birth trauma physical emotional um the main message is that you're not alone and it really is thanks to people like you who are brave and strong enough to perform that trauma over and over and over again, that the rest of us who maybe aren't quite brave enough to talk about these things um, gain a bit of strength and a bit of um, you know resonance and resilience. And I think it's an important thing actually to flag up. We don't have time to go into it in depth, but the fact that when you tell your story publicly and then you retell it and retell it and retell it over again it it's hard you know you are sort of reperforming your trauma many many times and when i wrote my book hard pushed i mean any trauma i've been through at birth is you know as a midwife doesn't even compare to what you've been through but i do talk about difficult times that i've had um in my role and even that even discussing that over and over again i you know i'm kind of at the point now where i'm like i don't really want to talk about it sometimes because it is you know it's still quite hard um but I think lots of readers will be so glad that you've been strong and brave enough to tell your story loose and if people do read the book or when people do read the book and they're looking for further support and resources because maybe they've been through something similar where would you send them first of all you mentioned Masik um would you sort of use that as a starting point I think Masik is great if you've had a really um, terrible injury. But actually, um, now it's not always perfect. And at the moment, it's really complex. And I know that in incontinence at the moment, lots of people have even been redeployed from continent services to other services. So I appreciate it's tricky right at the moment. But I would also really advocate for um, going to primary care as soon as you can um, and saying that you want some physiotherapy or to speak to a, a, a pelvic floor specialist, pelvic physiotherapist, pelvic health physiotherapist, I think they're called now. Um, so they were called women's health ones when I when I had it, but I think the ch- title has changed. Um, but you need to speak to someone who knows what they're on about. Because the other thing is, I mean, like everyone, you know, I went on to forums, I did all that sort of stuff. But you need someone who does understand what's happened to you and can look at your perineum, however grim it is to show someone else and can look at your bits and feel feel it and tell you how strong it is and tell you where to work because the other thing we do is women try 
with the best of intentions to help themselves and help each other. But you need proper help often, especially if you're leaking. So I would say, yes, Masic's great. And there's lots of emotional support online and lots of really good forums around continents and those sorts of things. Um, if you want to delve into it and the World Continents Federation, uh, well, yeah, World Incontinence Federation. I might send you the link so you can put it in the bottom of the podcast or whatever. They have a very clear website on continence that's really good, that covers everything, even the unmentionables like incontinence and sex and how it might affect those things and incontinence and depression, which we haven't really covered, but the book looks into because we don't talk about that ever in any of our sort of care pathways, or certainly they didn't when I was there. So you don't even realise that your depression is probably linked to your incontinence. Um but I would go somewhere where people know their stuff a bit because I think that we, with birth injuries, so many people have told me, you know, I didn't do anything or I read my book and then I'm going to do something now, but it's 25 years after the injury. And the really good news about loads of birth injury stuff is that it can be helped and most of it without surgery. There's really, really good ways that it can be helped. But the sooner you do it, the better and the more likely you have like long-term positive outcomes and that you won't need surgery or that things won't deteriorate. And the longer you leave it, unfortunately, these things just don't get better on their own if you're leaking or if you've got a prolapse or whatever. It's not going to magically go away. So ideally, if you can take a deep enough breath and cope with the fact that you're probably going to have to wee in front of a stranger and those things, go do it because they will be able to help you. And so I would also advocate going to primary care or to mm. the Slatter GP and um, trying to get a referral to your community pelvic health physios to get started. I think that's really helpful advice. And if that gets through to even one person listening to this podcast, then you'll have done something fantastic. I'm sure you've reached so many more people with the book. Um, and just before we close, I want to let all the listeners know that um it's not only a really moving book and uh, a really emotional and powerful book, it's also really, really funny. <laughs> and I laughed so much because your voice and your sense of humour really just kind of gild the lily and it's just brilliant. I would recommend it to all practitioners and all um, birthing people or people who have birth. So thank you so much for writing it and thank you for joining me. No, thank you. It's been really great and I, I love the podcast and I love the work you're doing and, you know, all power to the womb let's get let's get the conversation to carry on <laughs> thank you so much to loose brett for joining us and thank you for listening to what the midwife said today if you enjoyed this episode please remember to review and subscribe to the podcast tell me all about it on instagram at leah hazard tell your friends and join me next time